All right, Ted. Well, uh, thanks so much for having me in here, man. It's it's great to meet you and and uh, be in the facility. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Me so too. I always love to start or try to start by learning background stories of people like yourself who are in the position they're in. Uh, did nonprofit work always resonate with you? Is that kind of your long-term background? What, what's the story that brought you here? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I think that's the best part of my sit here today. I, for the poor people who met me 12 years ago when I had the honor of taking over probably thought, who's this guy? But uh, <laughs> no, Dan, I'm a, uh, I'm a corporate world guy yep. and have always been in the business world, a business junkie. Uh, just feed off the energy. And, you know, as I learned along the way, no two life plans work out. Um, and so I'm probably here, you know, it's funny how I ended up here. I ended up here because I lost a wife at an early age, uh, from cancer and she was only 35 and I was living in Dallas at the time. But at the time, all I kept thinking was there's gotta be more, there's gotta be more than making money and making money for others and so forth and so on. And so, uh, it took a long time. It took like 10 years for me to kind of process that and have the courage to step away from that world to do this. And here's the funniest part is I kept thinking the whole time, cancer charities, cancer charities. And all of a sudden, man, God opened this door completely unbeknownst to me. And then when I started thinking about it, I was like, wait a minute, I was adopted. Like, think about that. I wasn't even on my radar screen because my adoption being born in the mid sixties, I think I tease my mom. I say, you're not getting this for 10 bucks anymore. Mom. <laughs> like that's not how it works today, but I, it was such a benign, wonderful, healthy experience for me to, to be adopted a, as a baby, uh, that it didn't even cross my mind. I didn't suffer any of the trauma that these kids are suffering, but just watch it come full circle and to have this wonderful place put in front of me. It was just an, it's an honor. And so no, not at all. I am not a social worker. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see a difference today in terms of how nonprofits run is, you know, helping hand homes in its 128th year serving the community. So to me, the stewardship piece just weighs so heavy on me. How can I make sure this resource to this community is going to be positioned to serve another hundred years too as well? So my point is to have a business leader come in. Um, I'm, I'm humbled by the people I get to work with and my jobs to make sure helping hand home runs at the highest level. Yeah. And the argument behind that is if it runs at the highest level, then our true frontline heroes can focus on mission. Then I having to worry about whether we can pay the, you know, electric bill tomorrow and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry to hear about your, your, your wife. I didn't Thanks. know that. That's yeah. That, that's... Well, I was a long time, 20 years ago now. When, Crazy. when, when that happened, was there an immediate shift or a, a quickly thereafter, shortly thereafter, a shift in you in terms of looking like it just internally looking for something new to do with your life? I, I think, as you know, you've traveled and talked to so many fascinating people, but for me, it just kind of, you know, my own awareness level changed just going through that. And so, yeah, I mean, I dove in right away doing some fundraising to try to raise money for breast cancer research. And why does this happen to women? Why does it happen to young women? And then, you know, how can a young, healthy woman die yeah. from something like that? But it just, it just kind of catapulted me into a different place. It just made, it just raised my awareness level. Yeah. To, uh, I just never thought, I just kept thinking I can do more with what I've been given. And so to have this put in front of me just came out of nowhere. Yeah. What's the path there? I know that you said it was about 10 years, right? Between it did. It just because the courage. Yeah. First of all, you go through the grieving process, which is so complex. You yeah. know, two people. I, I'll never forget the advice I got when my wife died. One of the first calls I got was from a colleague that, she, that I worked with. And she had lost a husband at an early age, <clears throat> his 30s as well. And she called me and one of the first things she said was, I only have one piece of advice. I said, yes. Yeah. She said, don't listen to what anyone else says. And I 
thought at the time, at the time it didn't really resonate. And then it kind of washed over me and I give that same advice today. And what she meant was no two people grieve the same way. Yeah. Some people build a museum. Some people sell everything the next day. And so there's no right or wrong way. And that's what she meant by don't listen to what anyone else says. Cause it's such a emotional journey to kind of go through that. And one day you're fine. And the next day it's like you hit the wall emotionally and think yeah. about things. And so anyway, just, it took a while to process that. And then of course, just the fortune of, I, I got remarried four or five years later and, mm. uh, the thing never went away Yeah, in terms of what can I do? What can I do? And I think when I say it took 10 years, now a new wife, um, never had kids before now a family. And so it took 10 years of courage to step away from the money world yeah. that the corporate world can offer, as you know, and do this. And man, I, I am so thankful. I mean, yeah. it is a blessing to have this opportunity. That transition point where you, I, I guess I should, I should start by asking was, was helping hands. Was that the first shift for you from the business world to the nonprofit world or had you worked? Yeah. Okay. And I remember asking the board president, they did a nationwide search and I was, and I thought, I told my wife, Hey, I'm going to go through this interview process because I'm going to learn a lot. Um, because I felt like, you know, I didn't know anything about running a, a children's hospital or a behavioral treatment center or a school. Uh, I knew that I was adopted and that was it. Yeah. And I remember when they offered me the job, I thought you gotta be kidding. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the board president and I said, uh, Jeannie, I have to ask why on earth are you offering the position to me? And she laughed and she, I said, I don't know thing one about this. And she said, no, you don't. She said, but you know what you do know how to do? You know how to run a business and you're a leader. And she said, that's what we need. And I think that Dan, that's the stuff we're starting to see now is these community based nonprofits are so important to the community that they need to run well, like any business does. And like I said, if I do my job well and keep all the obstacles out of the way, then man, all our people get to focus on children and families. And that's mm -hmm. all that matters to me. Yeah. I don't want them burdened by all this other crap that we have to deal with. And so that's really the driving force is, can I pave the way for all the people yeah. uh, that are changing children's lives yeah. to engage in a meaningful manner and focus on mission? And. I know we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but just the long history of this place oh, and, and it, it's, it's, it's place in the Austin community. Something about that must have resonated with you. I imagine it, when, when you began that interview process, tell me about the history of, of this I, place and, I, and what I, you know. I, uh, to this day, it's when I say it's an honor, that's not some cliche stuff it's an honor to lead an organization into its 128th year. And then I think about my place in history, which sounds silly, right? Not for me, but in terms of making sure I don't crash the plane. So, <laughs> right. It's such an important resource to, to Austin and to central Texas. And then some of our work is statewide because of the excellence and the, of the trauma work that's done here that, that I'm, I, I, I mean this, I'm consumed with making sure that, that this resource is going to be thriving for another hundred years. Cause we keep changing, you know, so 128 years ago it was an orphanage. Uh, it was founded by women, um, which I, I think doesn't get talked about enough um, because they founded the home, what, 25 years before women would have the right to vote yeah. in this country. So uh, I cannot say enough about the forethought that took for this group of ladies, they call themselves the Helping Hand Society, and that name still today is, is the kind of power behind the engine that runs this. And um, they, they found an abandoned baby at the train station back in 1893. 
And that's how it started. And then they started the home and then the history kind of progressed from uh, buying a little uh, cottage on, you know, downtown to where we are today. And we've been on this location since 1925. So, wow. Yeah. And then it just evolved over the years from an orphanage. So like I have some ledgers in my office that show, remember the, well, you know, neither one of you or I remember this, but they used to dip pens like in ink. I have like books where they have the handwritten entry of a child that was just dropped off here and abandoned during the war or before the war or the life expectancy was different. So moms and dads died at early ages back then. And so they would just drop kids off and kids would live here for five, 10, 15 years until they could go out on their own. So it evolved from that to a full-blown residential treatment center today. Yeah. The, the, these orphanage stories in history are fascinating because yeah. w without them, I don't really know what happens to those children who get dropped off or who, who are unwanted, right? I mean, uh, it, orphanages play an enormous part in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was it mostly, when, it, when this place was primarily or solely an orphanage, what, was it a place just to raise children? People, the kids could stay here indefinitely? What, what, was that, yeah. what was that story? Yeah, because they didn't, again, I can't speak for them. I can yeah. only go by the records and some of the history. Um, they didn't know whether they were going to come back or not for them. They just couldn't care for them. Yeah. And so this became a place of care and compassion to raise children. It took the, you know, it sounds cliche, it takes a village. That's what Helping Hand Home is. It took everybody coming together to help, whether it was an abandoned baby or uh, somebody that parents couldn't take care of. Yeah. They would drop them off here and leave. It could be financial struggles. It could be anything. And so yeah. they knew that Helping Hand Home could raise these kids. So and to answer your question, we do have some people come back sometimes. I think that history, you know, when they see the fire truck that's sitting out on the, uh, the back uh, playground from like the 1930s, there's people that'll come back here that are in their sixties now and say, Oh my God, like it's emotional. They'll stop and you won't hear anything. And like, you can tell they're processing. Like we used to climb on that and play on that. My brothers and sisters. So yeah, yeah. it's crazy. If you think about the stability, this is, this is provided for the community. Yeah. And I, I have to imagine given your own adoption that, that, you learning about this place from, I assume, years prior to you ever running the organization, you were familiar with the work that they, that was being done here. If you were in any way familiar with it, what did you know? What did, what was your understanding about familiar what this place Familiar-ish. And yeah. what I mean by that is how many times in our lives do we drive by a place that we see a name, but we don't really, it doesn't connect? No. That's not in your... Right. Like, the world. No, yeah. you have blind spots to those things. And that's what I meant by my own adoption was so benign. <clears throat> when I think back on it, uh, I didn't go through the hell that these, these kids are going through today or have been through. And so, um, no, I, I, I didn't realize the depth of the problem until I got here. I had no idea it was this systemic and how complicated and complex child abuse is. Yeah. And I, I want to get to that. This is a word that I think we've talked about just in the past 30 minutes or so, trauma that's been yeah. used multiple times. Yeah. And I want to get there. I, I asked Laura Wolf this question as well because she um, also worked in the private sector as a lawyer for many, many years. And then eventually, probably roughly around the same age that you made the switch, yeah. made the switch to working for, yeah. for CASA. And I'm always interested in that moment where people who have been focused right their blinders are yeah. are on, their their priorities in life are money advancement uh, moving up a hierarchy and then something happens where they are permanently flipped in their priorities yep 
I think that often takes a long time for people to reach that point. But when they, when they do make that switch, it is a permanent change in identity. Yeah. Is that what happened with you? And, yeah, and what, no, what, no what is that story? As yeah. I share with you, you know, obviously losing a, a, a spouse at such an early age, it definitely planted the seed that it just took a long time for that seed to germinate. Yeah. It was always in the back of my mind, but I just looked up one day and said, now's the time. I mean, we've got the financial resources to do it. And that's why I say there's no hero thing here. Yeah. Like it, you know, what irritates me is when people say money is uh, overrated, you know, nobody should ever say that. Yeah. The only people I ever hear saying, talking about money being overrated are people that have plenty. <laughs> right. It's true. And so I think you need yeah. to be so careful when you say that. So to me, being able to, to step away from that world was because of the financial footing that my wife and I, you know, she's an attorney. And so having the footing that we have between my background and hers to take the courageous step to come do this. And so the real heroes are the people that are doing this from day one. Yeah. Not, not, you know, 25 years into business career where I've already had a chance to kind of accumulate yeah. some, um, um, stable financial backing, right? You want the real heroes, Dan, the people that are walking in the door right now, right out of college that have the awareness and the enlightenment to start changing their community now, not yeah. waiting 25 years. But yeah, no, no question. It took a while to have to, to that. I remember feeling overwhelmed thinking I'm not worthy of this. Like, I feel like I need to go climb a mountain or something just to kind of cleanse my, to get rid of my past, to kind of do this. And I was talking to someone, they joked, and they said, well, I don't know about climbing a mountain, but maybe you should read this book. I said, what is it? And he said, it's called Halftime by uh, Bill Buford. And so I said, Halftime. I go, I, I just, I, I like the sounds of that. And really what the book was about was that transition. Your life, you're at the halfway point. If you're, you know, depending on your life expectancy, it's not, <laughs> none of us have a crystal ball, but that halfway point of, of switching your life from success to significance is kind of what he talks about in that book. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. From, that, a, from a, you know, being successful to being significant in your community and trying to really trying to make a difference for your community. It, it, that I, I, I'm not familiar with that book, but it, re it reminds me just in your brief description, very similar to the second mountain, a book that David Brooks wrote a couple of years ago. One of the themes in the book is the difference between, um, I think it's the resume virtue and the, and the eulogy virtue. Same idea, right? Is, is that it. like, love it. There, there often is this I'm partly talking from personal experience here, right? I mean, you, you do have to, or at least I felt very driven to accomplish the resume virtues for many, many years of my life. And I, I think there is, my heart was always in the kind of work that you do. I've always been interested in nonprofit work, but um, I, you, you said this about your own story. And I, I think it's something I wish I would have known that is possible or that is relatively common where people, I would wish financial security for anyone. Absolutely. Because it does give you the, at least for me, more of a peace of mind of being able to take bigger risks and allocate your time to things that you don't have to place your paying your bills as your number one priority anymore. I know it sounds like you're a father now or that yeah. you became yeah. a father. Yeah, yeah. By the time you actually took over here, did you feel like even as a father, even as a dad, that this was something you were comfortable, you were okay with making that switch? Oh, but again, that's why I say yeah, it's easy for you and I to have this conversation because we had money. Yeah. And I, I, people don't like talking about this, but I can tell you right now, like if you think about Maslow, like you think about hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Remember that Will Smith movie uh, that he shot in San Francisco with his son? Pursuit of Happiness? Yeah. yeah. Remember that scene? where rock bottom was rock bottom and they were spending the night in the train station. 
I'll never forget that as a parent thinking, holy shit, like where do you go from here? Just the raw emotion of, of thinking about that. And so um, the reason why I don't ever want to hear, and I'm sensitive when people talk about money in, in a cavalier manner or that it doesn't matter, try telling that to somebody who doesn't know where they're going to sleep tonight yeah. or can't put food on the table or, or put clothes on their kids' backs. And so that's where, that's where that, I've just, I'm just, I have a hyper awareness about that. And I think it kind of motivates me here. You know, when we led the way to being the first in this community to get to $15 an hour, mm-hmm. you know, we did that five years ago. So back before it was even being talked about because I knew how important the work was and it's uber demanding and uh, to, to think about what it's like to try to take care of yourself yeah, and you know not eat ramen yeah. for three meals a day, right? And so we just, it was really important to me that we professionalize this work and, and it was kind of always been hidden. Yeah. kind of work. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of trying to bring it out more into the mainstream, just like you mentioned trauma too as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I want to, I want to get into this and the, the, what the kind of the, the day-to-day work, the frontline work that, that this organization does. Um, maybe let's start like day one, you join here, you show up, you've worked in the business world for your entire career and you've got this organization to take over. What, what did helping hands look like on day one when you became the director, the dude, <laughs> uh, it, it was full of caring, compassion people. Um, I'm just going to leave it there. Like, I don't know, Dan, this is weird. I think my ego leaving the corporate world, I probably did come in riding a little high. And what I mean by that is working in the corporate world. I, I kind of thought I was going to come into not a savior role by any means, but I thought I'd come in and like be able to help. Yeah. And what I realized was these are some of the most kindest and talented people I'd ever work with. Yeah. I don't know what I was expecting yeah. but to come in here and see the caliber of the folks that had dedicated their lives to doing this long before I even thought about it was very humbling, you know, for me, but to come in, my, my favorite story for that is our, our director of residential services, Chris Janowitz. Uh, he's like the child whisperer. He's been, <laughs> he's been here almost 30 years. He stopped in out of college for some coffee and they never let him leave. But he, um, you know, when I first took over, I just, I didn't understand it. I mean, I'll never forget because the property destruction. So like every day I would come in, something else would be destroyed. TV would be ripped off the wall, doors kicked in, windows thrown rocks through, furniture destroyed. Dan, every day. So I was like, well, we have to, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm making sure the business runs well. So right, no money, no mission. Yeah. And so I remember thinking, what the hell? Like every day property was being destroyed. So Chris would come in my office and that's our safe spot where he can come in and vent and I can do the same thing. And the door was closed one day and I'm like, Chris, I got to tell you, what, what the hell is this? Like every single day. And I, I go on this mini tirade of all these things that are broken. He's just calmly sitting across from my desk and he nods and he goes, yeah, that's why they're here. The kids. And to this day, that, that kind of helped shape where I am today. Yeah. That's why the kid, that's why the kids are here. Yeah. Like to him, broken stuff was part of what we do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It was a feature and not a bug. That's why they're here. And and it changed my whole perspective on, because just think about any parent in America in your own household, right? Like how long is that going to fly with every day something else is being destroyed? Well, when you think about trauma and you think of the effects on childhood trauma and you think about how dysregulated some of these, these, these awesome kids are uh, that have experienced the worst of humanity one of the things they do to cope with that obviously is not being able to manage that aggression. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it plays out here on full display and man, I'm telling you when he shared that story with me, it, that was, I remember the day 11 years ago now 
it kind of it set me on the right path. Yeah, and so the Helping Hands, it, it had been an orphanage, and you used the word evolve, or it, yeah. it had evolved. Sure. And what did it, what did it evolve into? Who who are the kids who end up here? <clears throat> Great question. Great question. So if you think about orphanage, right, we don't do that very much in the United States anymore. Yeah. So orphanage became foster homes. So obviously we have a very robust foster and adoption program as well, um, which doesn't get talked about enough because it's not the kids who live here. Hmm. So what happened here was as time went on, the kids that the home was asked to help uh, were um, displaying differently than maybe a child that was just here because dad died in the war, right? Right. Or mom was struggling and couldn't raise three kids without her husband. You got to remember this is way back in the day, right? Where yeah. The ideology suggests that there was a single earner and it was the man. So um, I think part of it was a natural transition to look up one day and see that the kids that were needing help were suffering. Mm. And I think that kind of paved the way towards understanding a better understanding of trauma, mm. right? And so that's how it kind of set its path towards well, this is a different kind of complex situation that we're looking at. It isn't a daycare. It isn't a, a place where they're okay and they're going to be okay. I mean, they need 24-hour support. Okay, okay. That, that's what it looks like today. And so, I, you know, we talked earlier about trauma. Um, I, th I, I was probably one of them. I remember 20 or 25 years ago when people would roll their eyes the first time they heard PTSD hmm. about our veterans. Yeah. I look at that today and think, how shameful, right? Or shameful, or maybe we just didn't understand it 20 yeah, or 25 ignorant. years ago. Yeah. yeah. You don't know what you don't know, right? But I just keep thinking, imagine what that felt like to them. Because people would roll their eyes when they heard, you know, secondary trauma or, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? Like so PTSD. Um, now, we look at that today. We would never say that to anyone today. Sure. And I think there's just a better understanding of it now. And boy, is there just the need for mental well, mental wellness and mental health. And well okay. So just to clarify, so the, the kids who end up coming here and, yeah. and potentially living here are people who had been in foster care who have, have had a historic abuse that Ooh. makes them have these sort of traumatic outbursts? Yeah, let's, or? Let's, let's think about what that looks like. So like in a, in a perfect world, I'm going to give you two examples. The benign example would be mom and dad, right? Traditional setting, historically. Uh, um, are, are fine. Um, they're not abusing their kids, but dad gets injured at work and takes a liking to the Viking and mom gets laid off from her job and somebody at school notices that their kids or child is wearing the same clothes or talks about being hungry or uh, doesn't appear to have any kind of hygiene routine, right? So yeah. usually a call would take place from the school to CPS, Child Protective yes. Services, saying, hey, I'm, I'm worried can you, it's anonymous, can you check this out? And the CPS would send uh, an investigator to go look into the home situation. They might say, mom and dad need help, right? And so they might uh, decide to remove the children temporarily and put them with a brother or an uncle, aunt or uncle, yeah. grandma, grandpa. Dad's going to get off the painkillers. His injury's going to heal and he's going to go back to work and mom's going to find a new job and things are going to stabilize and the child's going to go back home, right? Yeah. That's how it's supposed to go. Sure. And that's not how it goes, Dan. So, I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not reality, and that's not what we see today. So um, the other extreme of that, so here at the treatment center, we see the opposite of that. We see mom and dad who, uh, for a litany of reasons, right, are harming their kids. 
um, to, to forms of aggression and abuse and neglect that are hard to talk about. And that's why I said this work's been shrouded in secrecy for a long time. Yeah. But when you read the psychological evaluations or the admission uh, synopsis, if you will, of, of, a, of a referral for a child to be here, uh, I, I often say this to people. These are kids who've experienced the worst of humanity. So they've been sexually abused, almost all of them, physically abused, neglected, locked in, in rooms, locked in closets, starved, uh, again, sexually abused, physically abused, beaten. And so uh, those kids are removed as soon as it is made aware, right? A referral gets made to CPS, but how long have they suffered? That's the critical moment. I think that's where you're trying to see a change in the foster care system is traditionally they would remove the child and try to put them with aunt or uncle again, right? Yeah. The difference this time, Dan, is aunt and uncle are waving the white flag before the first weekend's over going, uh, we've never seen this before. Like he was standing over our bed with a pitchfork at three in the morning or we came in the other day and he had a cord wrapped around the dog's neck trying to strangle the dog. I mean, it's hard stuff. And so... They call and say, we had no idea it was this bad. We can't help. Then, you know, let alone the property destruction. Remember how I was joking about the property yeah. destruction earlier? It's kind of a, kind of a, a, a benchmark for me, but it's, it's not funny in those situations. So they call and say, we can't help. So now the child's ripped from their family and now rejected by another part of their family. Still no uh, trauma assessments done. So the traditional model, just put them in a different now, now we have to find a professionally licensed foster home, not a family member, right? Because yeah. they'll be trained to take care of this. Child goes in there, young child, right? Nobody's addressed the trauma. They're not getting any help. All they're doing is moving them around. They go to a foster home. Does anything change? The behaviors worsen. Yeah. Property description amps up. Uh, the foster family says, and especially if they have biological children, now all of a sudden they feel endangered. This child can't stay here. We yeah. have no idea it was this bad. We can't help. So they make the call and say they got to go. For the same reasons we just talked about earlier, right? They don't know how to manage that behavior, those behaviors. They've never seen explosive behaviors like that that are that dangerous. And so now the child, still no trauma assessment. They try it again and they try it again until finally the madness stops. Somebody thinks maybe we should do a trauma assessment on this child. Dan, my frustration is we should do that when they're first removed from a home. Yeah. Why are we waiting until they've been in five failed, this is lingo, five failed placements? You know what that does to them, their self-esteem? So by the time they get here and they walk in the door, their little middle fingers raised to the world. F you. Yeah. Been here, done that. How's this going to be any different? And they come in and they start kicking holes in the walls and cussing staff out, thinking nobody cares about me. And here in the reaction here, we're on a podcast. You can't see this, but is calm. Mm. And I think you can hear the child uh, exhale for the first time in how many years. And they're looking over their shoulder, waiting for like the violent correction. You don't do that in this house. You don't talk to me that way. And then all of a sudden they realize they're in a place that they're safe. Right. And they say, you mean you're not going to punch me? No, <laughs> we're not going to punch you. Well, whatever. You're going to kick me out. No, we're not going to kick you out either. Like they're expecting to get kicked out for these behaviors. And I think that's the, that's when we start to see um, how much damage has been done that for the first time in their lives, they're not going to be disciplined, which is code for beaten for the things they've done. Right. Yeah. And they're not going to have their bags set on the ports the first time they break something. Right. That's why I said earlier when I first started, I didn't understand that yet. Why are they breaking everything? Chris said, that's why they're here, Yeah, you know? And so I think that's when they realize they're in a place that's truly trauma informed. 
And so it takes heroes that understand trauma and understand what's causing the behaviors, right? Yeah. Like instead of why are you acting this way? Yeah. The question is what happened to you? That's crazy, good, huh? So that's for the long, way, but no, it's no, just, that, it's, that was, it's, it's emotionally charged. It's absolutely. complex. Yeah. The, the kids that end up here, are they all from Travis County? Is it, is it, who, where are they coming from? How common is it that they're, how many kids are you guys working with? So in the foster care program, it's definitely a central Texas thing. We okay. support the contiguous counties, right? Travis Hayes, Bastrop, Wilco, uh, you know, we support the immediate Austin and surrounding central Texas community with the foster families, because that's where our program is. That's where our families are. The residential treatment center, which is where we are today, where kids live that are experiencing the trauma you and I just talked about that need 24 hour care mm. because they wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares and they need someone right there by their side. Um, and so, uh, those kids come from all over the state because there's not very many places that are equipped or well-resourced. We, you and I talked earlier about community support. Yep. The reason why Helping Hand is successful is because we have incredible support from this community, financial support, and so therefore we're able to put more in. There's a lot to unpack there, but it's a, a woefully underfunded space, the child welfare space. I don't have any tolerance for the criticism I hear yeah. at the legislature or in the media when yeah. they want to criticize foster care, when they pay about 50 cents of what it costs yeah. to care for kids. So the the... Is there a battery of tests, right, that, that is given to a child that you're considering to, uh, taking in that, that they almost have to be at a level of trauma or mm -hmm. misbehavior to get in here? How, how does that process work of admission? Yeah, I remember I told you I was a reformed business guy, right? <laughs> so I'm very thankful that our clinical staff, uh, you know, obviously our psychiatrists, our psychologists, our therapists, and our clinicians, our intake team, they study the referrals to make sure that the children are... Uh, what they're suffering from, we're in a position to help. Yeah. So what I mean by that is it requires around the clock care. So you would never think of suicidal ideation at age eight or nine, right? It is, it is mind blowing that we're dealing with that in youth that have experienced such trauma that they would think about that at those ages. That's, that shouldn't be a thing. Yeah. Man. So it requires the kind of care high level around the, I'll give you for instance, some places use a, because they might use a, what they call a home care model where the parents would be asleep. There's no sleep here. This is like a hospital. So the overnight staff is like a hospital overnight of staff. Yeah. Because if the kids have been sexually abused, sometimes they will act out on other children, right? If they're left alone. So how could you ever leave a child alone? So we have 24 hour supervision so that as the child works through therapy, they can't get up while a caregiver's asleep, sneak into another room and act out on another child. Does yeah. that make sense? And so yeah. it takes a really robust model, right? That's trauma informing. We understand the behaviors. And so therefore we have the staff that's trained to intervene and we have the ratios that are required to provide that level of care. Yeah. It's just not paid for by the state. So the don our donors help pay, pay for oops. Tell our me, donors help pay for that. Tell me about the 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 capa like your capacity here to help. About right? 100 Hundred, hundred kids. Like well, on any given day in our care, if it's okay. like, let's say on a sample day, there might be sixty children we're responsible for okay. that are sleeping in in various foster homes throughout the community. People don't understand that work either, so we're responsible for recruiting, developing, training, monitoring, supporting foster families. Right. So if 
a husband and a wife or a husband and a husband or a wife and a wife, who cares? As long as it's the uh, home that's going to provide high level support for kids, yeah. we could care less what it looks like. Um, they will go through pretty intense training here. Um, sometimes up to six months before we'll place a child with a home. And then we're responsible for those kids and, and we're responsible for supporting the parents. Right. Yeah. Then on any given day here on the current campus, we have a, up to 40 kids in residential placement it means kids that this is home. So they celebrate their birthdays and Christmas and go to school here. That's you. When you came in today, you saw the new campus being built across the street because yep. our services are, uh, the demand for our services has exploded as Austin's population has exploded. Gotcha. And is the idea that the 40 who are here in residency, yeah. uh, eventually will potentially get placed with foster yes. care? What's, what's the difference between the the kids who stay here and the kids who go into Remember foster that care? Example we used earlier in my little perfect world, like dad yes. gets injured at work, yes. mom gets laid off, but everything's going to be hunky dory and dad's going to get well and mom's going to get a new job and, and they love their kids. And they're not abusing their kids. They're just, they need help, yep. right? Those kids are going back home. Why would they not go back home? That's the whole goal, right? Yeah. Where it gets messy, and I say it's emotionally charged work, you'd mentioned Casa and talking to Laura, is where it gets complicated is when that's not the case. So for the kids in foster family, what no one realizes is that any removal, there's a legal case that runs concurrent with a child's stay in foster care. Yeah. So that's what makes many, many decisions is what's the legal status of that child and that child's family, right? So if mom and dad are working hard to restore a healthy home, then the judge is going to be monitoring that along with the CPS caseworker and CASA. And the whole goal is designed to get that child back home again, yep. right? Check, big check mark, right? That's what foster care should look like. Temporary, stable, safe, loving, supportive until home is stabilized. Here's different. So in the residential treatment center, um, that legal case I talked about, the judge has usually already terminated parental rights for, I mean, you know, this is a discussion nobody needs to have the egregious acts of abuse we're talking about. There is no judge in Texas. that's going to put that child back with that family. Okay. Um, so those rights are terminated. Then this foster care system shifts focus. So if the child's rights are terminated, I talked about being adopted myself and my own passion for making sure these kids have every opportunity I've had. Now that paves the way towards adoption because once bio mom and dad's rights are terminated, yeah. the entire foster care system pivots towards now the child's what we call legally available for adoption. And now, now we get the honor of helping find their new family. And that takes a lot of work and a long time, especially if the child's in therapy. And that those are the sixty you were talking about, right? Those well, are that, the, that the kids that live here. Yeah. Those are the ones that are usually, um, and, and I say not going home again, Dan. We're going to find a new family for them, but that even gets complicated. And this is where I say this work is very complex and misunderstood. So I gave you two examples: the benign example, everything's great, a little bit of instability, kids are going home. Then I gave you the egregious example yeah. here. Child was abused horrifically by mom and dad. Child's not going home. We're going to find, we're going to help the child heal. And we're going to find a new family for them. Yeah. Boom. Both great outcomes. What about the middle? The middle is when, what if dad's abusing mom and the kids? Now what do we do? Yeah. So the judge isn't as quick to terminate mom's parental rights if she was suffering from abuse. So Dan, this is where it gets really deep. Now what? So the other two examples are clean, right? Clear path towards returning home in the foster care scenario. Clear path towards adoption if legal rights are terminated of both parents. 
what do you do when you have a mom who is suffering abuse too? What's it, what's the work community work look like to support her, to get her kids back? Right. That is where we see the biggest problem in my opinion is mom's got a mountain to climb that few people understand. She has to overcome her own abuse, whatever it's manifested itself. She has to stabilize her own life, her environment. Meanwhile, her kids are in foster care, languishing in care mm. because they're waiting for mom to get well. That, that's where the emotional part of this work comes in. The uncertainty. In. The kid every day is coming home. Did my mom call? No, honey, I'm sorry. She didn't call today. So mom's supposed to be getting support and services and CPS is monitoring mom and the courts are monitoring mom to see if mom's following the plan. Who's helping mom, first of all? I don't ever want to hear somebody judge mom hmm. until they've walked in her shoes, but who's helping her? Um, get to the point where she's ready to take the kids back. But what happens is the longer the legal case drags out, that child or children lose hope. Yeah. Oh, honey, mom, you know, who, who gets to tell them that mom failed a drug test today? That's the clinical part. Yeah. Uh, the therapeutic part of our work is then the child starts to internalize what's wrong with me. What, you know, or they hear the news that a sibling got adopted. Those are bad days, Dan, because all of a sudden that child's like, what, what's wrong with me? Why does anybody care about me? Why am I not being adopted? You know what I mean? I'm assuming that yeah. has been terminated. So <laughs> what, there's a lot to... What's the most common outcome in those situations, those kind of murky <laughs> middle grounds? Do, do, do the biological single parent generally get their kids back or, back or not? Uh, so what we hope to do is make sure mom feels the support enough to get the kids back. But when I say it's a it's an Everest-type climb... Yeah. Yeah. I, I for, for a reasons that you and I'd be here for four hours today. It's there's substance abuse issues. There's uh, self-esteem issues. There's, you know, um, their own trauma they're dealing with. Uh, there's economic distress. Yeah. What if, what if they cling to the next guy that comes along? Let's, you know, I'm talking about, I'm talking about, I'm talking about a traditional model where mom is not the earner and she's been abused. It's a, it's a rough, rough road. And so what happens a lot of times is she'll latch on to somebody else who can provide care. Yeah. Well, what's the new person look like? How many times do we hear cases where the new person's into mom, but doesn't really care about her kids? Right. Then we see abuse all over again. Sometimes they'll return the kids back. Mom's new guy abuses the kids. Kids come back to care. Yeah. Messy, brother. Yeah, man. It is messy. The, no easy answers. So the, let, let's take the, the, 40, the 40 kids who are here currently, yes, right? I mean, do you currently have the resources if a child is meets the qualifications for entry here to take in anyone who gets presented to you or what, so what's we, that? We have, what's the capacity? Uh, so any given, like? The reason why we're building is you and I are looking out yeah. the windows at the construction of the new, the new, um, <clears throat> the new campus, which is going to let us serve more kids and families. Um, we're turning away too many kids and it's bothered me every day driving home for 10 years. And so this is why we started this process with Austin, I think four years ago, that's what it's like to try to get something built in this town but, um, <laughs> with all the permitting and, and restrictions and regulations. But, um, we have an assessment criteria. So let's say we get referrals for 400 kids yeah. on a given year. 300 may not meet our admission criteria. Age, we serve younger kids. We serve kids from five to 13 here on this campus. Gotcha. We don't think it's healthy to mix on a, on a, on a campus our size to mix 16, 17, 18-year-old that you could argue adult age kids with young children, especially if they're all suffering from the same kinds of trauma. So we, we cater more towards younger children. So that's a big admission criteria. And then all kinds of different factors in terms of their ability to, um, 
from from their level of functioning, right? So my point is we work through an entire checklist. Yes. Um, that whittles down to about 90 to 100 kids a year that have met our admission criteria. I mean, kids, we're not going to fill a bed, Dan, to fill a bed. Right. Does the child need therapeutic intervention? Do yep. they need 24-hour residential care? Only after we've checked all those boxes, the last box we check is do we have a bed available? Hmm. And when we check no bed available, this is a child we could have helped. Dude, there was a story, I'm not sure if you were here a couple years ago, <clears throat> that there was a, a young freshman at UT from Portland, Oregon, that was murdered on campus. I didn't know that. And I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget my reaction because while there's absolutely no excuse to the young man that killed her, he was aging out of the foster care system. He had nothing to do with Austin. He had just moved here from another part of the state. But when his history came out, no one helped him. He had suffered abuse his whole life. And he was one of those that kept kind of going in and out of care to his family. And then back out and then to his family and back out and then into licensed foster care and back out. So when he aged out, um, I've often said, we can't let kids age out of foster care. Yeah. If you age out of foster care with the perception that your life doesn't matter and that no one cares about you, that's a dangerous place for a young person to be because then they're not going to care about somebody else. And he callously took a life because of that. Yeah. Yeah. All I kept thinking, Dan, was could we have helped that kid when he was eight years old? Yeah. I mean, it, we could have changed the trajectory of his life. We could have saved another life. Yeah. I, it, I'm sure this is why there's more construction going on that this has been bothering you for, for That's many, many why years. You're seeing us build. And yeah. if I'm understanding you correctly, you guys do have to turn away plenty of kids oh. every year for lack of capacity. After, that's why I don't give you the big number. So yeah. 400 referrals doesn't count because right, not right. all those kids need this level of treatment or this level of care or can we help? We want to thread the needle. It's such a precious resource. We want to make sure clinically we can help that child, right? And so once they've met the admission criteria and the number's still between 80 and 100, problem. Yeah. Because I kept thinking, where are they going to go? There's very few places That's, that, are, that, was that have the financial what, support that Helping Hand has. Where do they go? What happens to those children? Anywhere CPS can find a place to put them. That's awful. Yeah. That's awful because they're not going to get help. But almost certainly wherever they're placed, they're not going to have the resources no, or the facilities. No, remember I talked about an underfunded do. system Yeah, and my frustration, aggravation, uh, inner rage against the machine Yeah, uh, is because you can't underfund the child welfare system and then shrug your shoulders and say, well, the foster system's crappy. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not helping kids. It's a terrible place to be. Um. There's 30,000 kids that are in need of foster care on a given day in the state of Texas. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah. So I can tell you what Helping Hand does because we've been here 128 years. This community supports us at a level that 55% of our annual budget comes from private donations. Yeah. And that's what we're able to put back into the care of the kids. And that's why there's a wait list to get kids in here because the other places don't have the bandwidth to fundraise like we do. Yeah. So they're trying to do it on the state's reimbursement. Yeah. The state's reimbursement, what's that look like for a kid suffering from trauma? He's going to be in an unhealthy uh, environment where there's not going to be a trauma-informed approach to care that we described here, hmm. right? I want to get into the, the financial component of this. I mean, you have a business background. Yeah. And I think anyone who works in nonprofits for any period of time realizes the crucial role that money simply just plays in yeah. your ability to provide yeah. the services you're trying to provide. Yeah. Um, you know, and hopefully plenty of people in Austin are going to, are going to listen to this. What do you need? What, what paint, paint an ideal, 
best case scenario outcome uh, for five years from now. Give you a perfect example of what where the frustration comes from. My frustration is not because it's a mission based on profit. That's the blessing of this sure. work. And that's the humbling part of the work. My frustration is the kids we're serving are in the legal conservatorship of the state of Texas. That's a big difference than us just trying to help somebody out. Yeah. So if they're legally in the conservatorship of the state of Texas, and then the state turns around and says, hey, we need your help. We're happy to help. It costs 400 a day. Yeah, we have 190. What the hell is that, Dan? Yeah. What do you mean you have 190? It costs 400. That'd be like saying you need surgery. We're going to do about half of it, Dan. Yeah. So that, that kind of sets the scene for what we're talking about here. And in terms of wellness for a child, right? Are you just talking about a place to put them? Knock yourself out. That's not this place, right? Yeah. And you're not going to solve any problems by just having a place to put them. If we want to help children heal and get out of the foster care system, then we need to invest in it. And so what I mean by that here is we have twice as many staff as we're required to have mm. because that's the level of care the kids need to have. So who's going to put 10 traumatized children in a single home with two staff? That's the level of care the state pays for right now. Then they want to know why it's not working. Mm -hmm. It's not working because what two human being, human people <laughs> can take care of 10 highly traumatized kids at the same time yeah. around the clock. They can't. The minute a child needs help that pulls one staff off that leaves one with nine. Yeah. Bad formula for everybody here. At least thanks to our donors, we have four or five staff working with 10 kids. Yeah. So that when a child needs help and individualized attention, they're six, seven, eight years old, developmentally, de developmentally delayed, suffering from trauma as a, as a result of the abuse. We have people that can go work with those kids one to one. Does that make sense? Well, let, let's. So that, that's kind of like we wanted the backdrop. That's why this level of care is designed to be high impact, like. It doesn't need to be just a child who needs a bed. It needs yeah. a child who needs a therapeutic assistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, so let's say, and I look, I, I know en enough about the Texas state legislature to know that, it, you know, it, it's resource, it's allocation of resources to programs, organizations like this are, are known to be limited. Sure. Let's say that just hypothetically continues <clears throat> indefinitely. And also, let's say that Austin continues to become a much wealthier yeah. city over the yeah. next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. What ideally, if, if there was a surge in philanthropy in, this, in the city of Austin, if more and more people know about the work that you guys are doing here, what, what, what would you need? How much more money would you need to be able to make this place what you would ideally like it to be? You know, uh, the backs of our donors have already built this place. Yeah, sure. And but so, there are new people moving into there, Austin there, there every day, right? There absolutely are. And, and again, I, I think the, it is humbling to think about people who are taking their own money and investing it back in their community yeah. and investing in helping you know. I, I'm never, ever lose sight of that any, on any given day. I think we're going to need to see the state also do their part is yeah. my point. That's a heavy lift. So for instance, instead of having to go out and raise $15 million from donors, right? I could use that money to fund the gaps here, right? Yeah. If the state would pay closer to the cost of care. Remember, these are their kids and their legal conservatorship. Yeah. Not just because Ted thinks it's a good idea, just because it's their responsibility. So, so the money could go towards the things we talked about, all the things we have to pay for, like 
the staffing ratio and the level of care that the kids receive. Yeah. Clothes. I mean, you name it, go right down the line of any, anything that they need to get support. Yeah. Right? So what, what is the, what's the budget currently? And what do you think about the budget? 10 million. Would, 10. Okay. And what would you need to make this place? What, what well, right you, now uh, five and a half of that comes from donors and four and a half comes from the state. But even though the kids are all in their legal conservatorship. So, okay. Again, that's a pretty big lift and burden to put on your sure, community. Sure. Yeah. But I'm, I'm very, very thankful. What happens? The reason I'm bringing it up is it's, it's, it's an imbalance. We can't serve every child that needs our services statewide. Yeah. If it moved from 10 to 20, would that be, in your mind, all you would need? Like, what, what would oh, be gosh. the ideal number for, for I, you? I mean, there's so much here to unpack and talk, talk about strategic direction. I would say that if we're going to put more money in the system, let's keep kids out of foster care to the extent we can. Yeah. What's that look like? So one of the programs we do here is, uh, it's, um, so years ago, there were parents so desperate for help for their kids that they couldn't get help, like some of the scenarios we described. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's say they adopted a child and all of a sudden they needed help and realized we're in our way over our heads. They, or let's say it's their biological child, forget adoption for a second. And this child was suffering for some reason and the behaviors became unmanageable. There are documented cases of parents who called in self reports on themselves to CPS. So they were, that's how desperate they were for help. Yeah. They weren't abusing their kids. They made it up. But that's how desperate they were for help. So that's what I'm saying is this, there's a lot to this. Sure. You and I'd have to have a series of podcasts to talk <laughs> about the, the depth of the problem in foster care. But this program now identified that need. And now there's a program in the state. It's small through Health and Human Services that we can help those families now. They don't have to make up a, self, a, a self-reported allegation against themselves. Yeah. Think about that. That's how desperate yeah. to get help for their kids. So now that program, we serve those kids too as well. The beauty of that program is we have parents who recognize they're at a tipping point with their kids. Let's intervene then and we can help the child stabilize and we can learn about the child and what's happened to them and we can learn what they need to get well. And guess what? We're helping mom and dad at the same time Yeah, because we're teaching mom and dad what kind of needs the child has and what, what the trauma is that they're suffering from and what they're triggering some of those behaviors. And so we're keeping a family together. Yeah. So there's that program as well. I think you mentioned that this, that the services you provide are for kids between the age of five and 13 in the, in the residential center and then birth to 20 in the foster care program. Okay. Talk about your team here and, and the services that you guys are providing to the, the kids who actually are living here between the ages of, of five and 13. Around the clock care, um, subjected to injury. We, we thank God goodness for the university of Texas school social work, which is in our backyard. And so we, we kind of have a pipeline of undergrads that graduate and they want to pursue their career. And so this is their first stop. And, um, just amazing people that understand trauma, like, you know, new world thinking versus old school parenting. Hmm. Right. Um, and so they're tomorrow's leaders in child welfare and they start here. But, um, when a child acts that way, the child will often act out, especially if it's predominantly females in the school, social work, the boys that we're serving, what did they see at home? Oftentimes, right. They saw dad treat mom horribly. Hmm. So they will target or attack some of our female staff. And so they're subjected to injuries, getting bitten, their hair pulled, uh, spit on during a pandemic. Kids might think it's funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, any kind of, it's not personal attack. Sure. It's they're, they're upset and they have every right to be upset and they're taking it out on their caregivers. And so 
that's what it looks like for the frontline heroes that are here. And so the level of training it takes and the level of compassion on their part, Dan, that these, uh, I can't say enough about the staff that works here. I, yeah. I, I can't. They, the fact that they're able to respond in an empathetic way, uh, more people should know about the, <laughs> the heroes that yeah. work here. It's, so they're primarily social workers? Is that, yeah, is that generally the, yeah. the background that's, of that's the people the, who work here? That's the, that's the great fortune of having UT in our backyard. Yeah is it takes um, tremendous resources to tackle this problem. Yeah. So you can't have um, old school parenting techniques on display here. I'll give you, for instance, no voices get raised here. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd get fired probably in the first week if I worked in the direct care staff situation because I'm an excitable guy. And <laughs> I've been known to raise my voice a time or two, and I would argue that most parents in America wouldn't make it here yeah, because they've raised voices in their household too as well. But Chris's program is a much more nurturing and it's trauma informed. And what I mean by that is they may want to raise their voices, but they don't because they know why the child's suffering. And I think when you know why the child's suffering, it changes your outlook on how you're going to respond in a crisis. Yeah. So it's a very, the child supplies all the energy we need in that situation Yeah. because they're upset and they're dysregulated and they might be uh, acting out or replaying something that happened yeah. in their lives. In the Do staff. the children all have their own, their own bedroom? Are they yeah. living separately? What, well, what's the, what's the day to day life looking like? For yeah. Those, they for they the have kids? some shared based on their history. Obviously okay. we, yeah, I can't, uh, you can't imagine the amount of work that's put into making sure if we're going to have two kids in the same room, what their history is. Oh. Obviously we can't have any history of, of sexual aggression or any kind of sexual abuse with either child and have two kids in a roommate setting. But the beauty on the new campus is when we build the new campus and when it opens, then we're going to retrofit the existing campus and every child will have their own bedroom. Hmm. So not only are we going to serve more kids, every child's going to have their own bedroom and we're going to drop the number of kids on each home from 10 to five. Nice. So serve more, Make more family-like settings with homes of five instead of ten, and each child gets their own bedroom. Okay, and so you, you said twenty-four hour care. Is that you know? The, I'm I'm sure you know. Uh, the kids are kids are going. Most kids are, are going to bed at a reasonable hour. Like yeah. Are there? But is it still social workers who are there at three o'clock yes, in the morning when one of them wakes up question. and starts throwing things great across question. the room? Well, I mean, you know what? From from what the trauma they've been through and the sexual abuse, um, the percentage of children who wet the bed at night. I think would shock people. Yeah. 75%. Hmm. And I'm not talking about just six, seven, eight year olds. I'm talking about nine, 10, 11 year olds too as well. I, I didn't know that. I mean, that's the level of care that it requires to have somebody that's going to intervene in a positive manner, yeah. in a compassionate manner, change sheets in the middle of the night, Yeah. Mm -hmm, change clothes in the middle of the night, shower in the middle of the night or nightmares when they wake up with nightmares, someone has to be right there. Yeah. It, it's technically not a medical facility, right? Or is Correct. it? Correct. And I think that's why it gets lost sometimes because at least in a hospital, the patients are sleeping, right? Yeah. So here with our kids, um, because of the trauma, we have to have, they're too young to regulate those kinds of behaviors. And so the kids need to be cared for 24 hours. And the other element we talked about, the level of, if you talk to kids who've lived in any kind of group home, they often cite the word fear because there wasn't enough supervision. So let's say kids are going to bully or act out on other kids, especially when they get older. You're never going to see that in a place like yeah. this because of the level of supervision we have. Yeah. I mean, you, and, and you, therapeutic interventions you in talking about, you're right. I mean, these are, these are kids that have gone through outside of maybe war, the most horrific things that human beings can go through. It's probably worse than war because they're kids. They're not adults. 
going into battle. And it's their own family oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. The people that they're relying on for, for trust and safety. What have you found, if anything, actually helps? I mean, there, there, it's, I don't, you know, I, I've known some people that have gone through some pretty serious trauma in my life, not many, but, um, these often are just enduring issues that we, to my knowledge, don't often know how to deal with appropriately. What, if anything, in your experience, and it's given admitting that it's, it's an amazing fact that you guys are doing this, are mm-hmm. filling this void that otherwise wouldn't be there in society. What, what actually works, if anything? In so your here's experience? the difference is what you, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, Dan. So the knock on the system is if you look at congregate care or group home, it depends on the needs of the child, right? Mm. Or it should. If you look at a residential treatment, it's designed to help children suffering from trauma, not a warehouse situation. Mm. Not like the refugees from the border, right? Who deserve yeah. humane, compassionate care, right? This is a level a hundred times greater than that in terms of what's going on with that child, right? In their head. Yeah. So, uh, to watch a child get well, I think is the cool, probably the coolest thing I've ever, I mean, I mean, you say what works. So if you put kids in a place that's not designed to actually provide therapeutic care, then the child's going to spend their time there. They might do okay while they're there, but you're not really doing any trauma work. You're not mm-hmm. really doing therapy. You're not helping them get well. Yeah. And then time's up and they leave. Has anything really changed, right? And so they would argue that the system fails in that case. Here, um, you know, our success rate's closer to 85%. And it's never going to be 100 because if we're reaching for the kids who need our services the most, there's always going to be kids that yeah. we can't help or children that are going to regress or children who are suffering in a, in a way that they might need more psychiatric, which there's only one level of care higher than ours, and that would be like a psychiatric hospital, which yeah. you don't ever want to see a child. We take plenty of kids from there. We don't ever want to see a child go backwards and go back there. What, what does success mean? Family. Hmm. Watching them. So sometimes it takes a while. So uh, to watch kids who are suffering, and Dan, it hasn't happened to us yet, but you know the, the blessing of being here on this home, I'm not in some ivory tower downtown. My office is in the same building where the kids live. Yes, I get to hear the sounds of joy, and I get to hear the sounds of pain too as well, meaning hmm. you can hear the suffering when they're angry and upset and they're screaming and yelling just in a way to relieve some of the pressure and anxiety that they're feeling. Like if you take their pulse, they may look calm. Yeah. Their pulse is racing just because their amygdala is, I mean, like they're just think about everything in their bodies on fire, right? From the trauma that's been done to them. Right? Yeah. They're but in a su- heightened fight, flight or freeze mode. But success is that is having them get a family or what? Yeah, what watching is- that step down. Remember I talked about how they, we know they're safe, but they don't know they're safe here yet. Mm-hmm. Watching a child realize that they're going to be okay. No one's going to hurt them here. And that then there's people that actually care about them and that are going to help them in the weekly therapy or their daily interactions or their school and their counselors and their, the psychiatrist that's making sure they're not, they're medicated properly and all those things are stepping down off of prescriptions they shouldn't have been on yeah. all those levels of care to watch them in therapy. It might take two years to yeah. overcome, right? But to watch them leave here to either go back to their family. It's rare. Remember the example I gave, let's say mom gets well or they can find a part of the family that's not mm-hmm. been suffering from, um, from these scenarios. If they can find part that hasn't been systemically affected, a healthy part of the family, they might return a child to that part of the family uh, or to watch them leave for a new family. That's the best day ever. I bet. Yeah. Because that, that's all the work that's, that's the, honestly, at the end of the day, we can't screw up the ending. 
Yeah. That's all I care about. Yeah. You can do great work for a year and a half, but if you screw up the ending, what difference did it make? Yeah. And I'm sure this is a question you think about a lot. I mean, it, let's say the success rate, which again, is them graduating to into us, there's into only one measure. Family. Can they leave here and join a family setting and stick? Gotcha. Okay. I, I, I have to imagine that one of the things that you think about a lot is the the inverse, right? The 85% that actually work. And then there, there is always going always to be, be, and I think you're probably right. Some smaller percentage that for maybe some unknown reasons, it, that is just not possible for them. What, what uh, among that cohort of the 15%, what, what tends to be some patterns that you notice of, of Excellent. the people that fit into that category? Excellent question. Excellent question. Uh, that that's the one that keeps me up because if you think about vanity, if we were worried about the number being a hundred percent, we wouldn't take those kids. Yeah. So if an emergency room was going to be shut down because somebody died, sure. Yeah. They're going to say, no, you bleed out in the parking lot. You're going to yeah. affect my numbers, right? We're always going to aim high and we're right. going to take kids suffering from extreme trauma. Um, so if, if they land here and we can't help, what I've noticed the most was tied back to the legal case the child who's been in care way too long and the legal case with mom or dad or mom or dad or one or the other has drug on so long, right? That the child's lost hope. Literally they're old enough now and say, I don't want to, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. Like I'm done. I've had my hopes raised so many times to have them crashed. And so then they start self-sabotaging, self-harming. Um, they don't know they've, they've lost hope. Yeah. That's what we have to fight against. We, we, so I've noticed that if a child stays in care too long. So if they, when they've worked through treatment, and again, we're not going to cover it all today because yeah. obviously there's a lot to it, but to watch the beauty of a child working through treatment to the point where they are starting to be able to regulate some of their feelings like you and I should be able to, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> in principle. <laughs> yeah, that's the sweet spot. That's the time. It's time to move them from here into a family setting. And that works when the legal path is paved that way. Yeah. But what if that legal case is still in limbo and the child's ready to go? Then that's where I told you earlier, it gets really messy at that point. So that's when we see a lot of regression because they, um, how many times can you go to the well on hope? Yeah. I mean, they got their hopes up so many times that they're going home again, or this is the time for real this time. And then some snag in the legal system in terms of the mom and dad's case or reunification plans with, yeah. with part of their family. So that's when we see failure mm -hmm. and it's led because the kids are aware enough to say, I'm done. Yeah. Like I don't care anymore. F you. And so that's one. The other would be a high, uh, like maybe schizophrenia or a high level of psychiatric care. We don't see that very often, Dan, because our job up front is to screen for that. Yeah. But we can only go by the information that we have. Okay. I think, uh, you know, you would know far more about this than I do, but I, I have to imagine that there is a uh, reasonable correlation between kids who come to places like this who are in foster care and then eventually, if not treated properly, if their lives just don't unfold as everyone would hope they would, end up in prison. Um, Man, a, a, another public expense. And excellent, so excellent I'm point. sure you have, if this is resonating at all, you have made this pitch as to how, right. It's, it's the old adage that, uh, you know, like a, a pound of what is it? Prevention pay, or something. Prevent, right. It's worth a pound yeah, of yeah. cure. Yeah. yeah. Um, an ounce, an ounce of prevention is, is yeah. worth a pound yeah, of cure. Yeah. Like it, it is that a reasonable conclusion or yes, idea to, to sort of fester on in, 
it telling a more comprehensive story about who these kids are and wh where they'll end up if they're not given proper treatment. Yep. That's why I used that story earlier, that tragic story of the freshman that was killed on campus at UT. I mean, just, just I kept thinking about how we failed her family. She's not even from here. She's from Portland. Yeah. It's been one of the most exciting times in your life. Mom and dad to send her to Austin to go to the University of Texas. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Yeah. Uh, if you're a parent, thought of something happened to your child. But it just, it stuck with me. And I'm glad it stuck with me because I kept thinking, who helped him? Who intervened when 10 years ago when it could have changed the trajectory of his life? Because you're, you're right. If we don't intervene then, and that's the cool thing about the age here, is we have a chance to intervene when the kids are young enough to get in there early mm -hmm. and change the life trajectory. Because if they age out, they are going to end up in the um, juvenile, ju well, juvenile justice, but then they're going to end up in the yeah. criminal justice system, right? Yeah. And guess what the other pull is on the other side for females? Prostitution? Sex trafficking. Yeah. yeah. So those are the two big things we've seen lately, right? If we let males, young men, age out of foster care, detached, alone, no sense of worth, this thought that no one cares about me, so F it right then then that's dangerous for our community and they're going to end up in trouble and in the in the criminal justice system and then for the girls the self-esteem issues of aging out uh foster care the first time somebody comes along and makes them feel good about themselves which it's scary that some of the sex traffickers have that skill set yeah but they're able to pull them in like a magnet yeah and so that's where my passion comes from as we interviewed in an early age we can avoid those two outcomes okay w legally speaking at what age are individuals able to opt out on their own from from foster care? i mean they get emancipated as you know that's a legal process that child can go through from their own family right mm -hmm. but i mean typically it's 18 without emancipation right okay yeah so child can if they can prove that case up to go out on their own they can do that before that right but that's yeah a, that's a legal hearing so for us it would be 18 and um you know, the kids used to get cut off at 18, and thankfully the legislature did respond to that some years ago and extended care to age 20 so that we can help kids that are at that tipping point instead of saying, hey, happy 18th birthday. Yeah. Good luck, son. I, you, I have to imagine that some of your energy or the organization's energy is focused at in the Texas state, state legislature. Who, who, <laughs> who, if anyone, is receptive to the narrative or the story or the, the asks that you would... Uh, you would make requests you would make from there, the from the state government to provide additional resources to help these kids. There's been some some great people. I don't want to single out. I, I would say the governor and the first lady. Currently, uh huh. Uh, he has put energy into foster care. It's, it's not enough yet, but yeah, he's got a few things on his plate. So I'm just yeah. saying, if you watch his actions and his priorities at the legislature, and the first lady um, has been here on several occasions, they care greatly about foster kids um um and, and they they their lives matter just like all children's lives matters and so they've put energy behind it and i think some of the legislative staff they're kind of the unheralded ones right they're the ones working behind the scenes they're not the elected officials they're the ones doing all the field work and homework and studying and researching and things like that yeah they've been they've been pretty great about understanding the complexities involved are there are there helping hand organizations like this around the country i mean are, are there are there other organizations that have similar missions in in other cities oh. and, and if so wh which ones to you are outside of this one are the model are are, are some that you look up to there first of all um there are a lot of people that are trying really hard yeah uh, and i remind people when they come here we don't pretend that we're smarter than others or that we're better than anybody else 
we just have better resources, Dan. And if you're going to tackle complex problems, uh, just a tip, you, bet, you better have the resources to, to, to tackle complex problems. So this community has given us those resources, right? So I think a lot of it is expected of us, and that's why we're kind of leading the way with our expansion and, and um, the wage growth of our staff, et cetera. Um, but there's, there's usually one organization like this in every community, if you oh. will. So San Antonio would have one, and Houston would have one, and Dallas would have one. And, and so there's usually one. I mean, we all know every, every community has one of those places that's like helping hand. Yeah. The problem is that's not enough. Mm. So you can't just have one in every community that has the history and the legacy and the ability to fundraise. Yeah. Helping um, hand, though, is unique to Austin, right? I mean, it, there aren't, there aren't no, multiple of these around, around the country. Yeah, because if you think about its heritage and, and, and kind of what makes it successful, it's, it's, it's the fact that it's integrated with the community so well. Yeah. So you can't really see it during a pandemic. But even today, you saw a glimpse of it when you saw the traffic yeah. around. Volunteers were dropping off food to feed the staff a home-cooked meal and stuff, like some of those little extra things. Yeah. We really just have a real wraparound support of our staff because they're doing hero work. Yeah, yeah. I have to imagine every every city is trying. You know, when I met Alan Graham, the day I, 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 I interviewed him at Community legend. First, the dude is a legend. And there were people, he was holding a workshop that day where people had flown in from all over the world to learn how they had made mm -hmm. their model work. Yep. And I have to imagine some of, some of what might be able to help uh, is just picking out the best ideas and the yep. best processes that, and applying them at organizations like this around the country. Is there any sort of national umbrella that's organizing people who do similar work to Helping Hands to so try I, to help with that? I can't speak nationally. I can say statewide. Yep. We, have, we have the Texas Alliance of Child and Family Services um, that I'm a board member of. Hmm. Just incredible. It's the, the top leaders in child welfare in the state, but the staff that runs that organization is... Uh, the legislative effort they make every session is off the charts yep. in terms of trying to make sure there's an awareness of, of the lift involved and how serious this work is to what you and I talked about. Let's intervene early and often and prevent kids from languishing in care and aging out and becoming in the prison population or sex trafficking trade. So <clears throat> that organization, I can't say enough of. Um, and then in terms of the standard of care, you know, I, I mentioned Chris Janowitz earlier, he does training and speaks at conferences to make sure that people understand what a trauma informed environment really looks like, not talk about it, but in action. I told you no voices get raised. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think people understand like no voices get raised is real. Like if a voice got raised here from one of his staff members, he would know something's wrong. Like the person, um, cause every human has their limit, right? Yeah. Somebody could have, we have to use a highlighting system because we're like a hospital. If somebody gets in a car accident or something happens to an employee's mom gets hospitalized and they have to call in for their shift. The person that's highlighted has to stay and work a second shift. So somebody coming off the back end of an 18 or 20 hour shift might be not feeling the height of their compassion at the end of that sure. shift, right? So yeah. if he were to hear stress in their voice or even the use of sarcasm, we would intervene and say, hey, are you okay? And we would try to get, self-care is a big deal here. Okay. Trying to get people two and three days off at a time so they can have a chance to kind of, so yeah, he, he spends a lot of time talking about what a trauma-informed environment looks like. We don't use a point-level system here. Hmm. The problem, Dan, is we live in a point-and-level world from our education to our grades yeah, to our bank yeah. accounts to everything we do is like a your FICO score. Yeah. Like everybody there's a point level to everything. Chris got rid of that here years ago when he realized that it would be like, okay, Johnny, great job today. You get a gold star. Hey Susie, not so great job today. You get a bronze. it's all positive reinforcement. Yeah. So yeah. he uses attachment theory model and he doesn't use that reward on behavior. Cause if you start dangling carrots, 
you're not really going to change anything. You're yeah. going to get a short-term outcome of, I really want to accomplish this. So I'm going to, we don't do that here. So he okay. got rid of the point level system. It's not a, you earned 79 points today for your behavior. No, we don't do any, we don't do any okay. kind of stuff like that. And I'll give you for instance, why if a child's upset at nine 37 in the morning and they act out based on that, uh, uh, distress or being triggered, right? The traditional model would suggest bad boy, Johnny, you're not going to go to the, you know, we're scheduled to go to the movies at five o'clock where you can't go now. Right. We don't do, we don't do that stuff here mm. because that's a point in time, like five o'clock to a dysregulated child at nine in the morning. That might be, that may seem like the grand Canyon to them. So, <laughs> so we don't, we try not to judge that way. We try yep. to stay in the moment. And so we just got rid of all those little external little levels that we would put on a child. Like, okay. Go put your gold star on the board. We don't, we yeah. don't, do, don't do that kind of stuff. If here. someone in Austin is listening to this and the work that you guys are doing resonates and they want to help, we talked a little bit about the, the financial component of, of yeah. nonprofit work. Sure. H how do people in Austin help you guys? Do, do you have like fundraisers every year? What, what's, what are the mechanisms by which people in Austin can help? I mean, well, there's, I mean, one, I mean, no, nobody running a nonprofit would not talk about the, how critical donations are. Sure. Right. And I, and I don't think that gets talked enough about either because people that support uh, their community through donations, um, yeah, the, in a free market society, Dan, that's their money and they've earned it and they can do with it what they choose. And so to see people turn right around and put that money back into their community, I don't care what you've met some great leaders of nonprofits. It just strengthens our community to have that level of philanthropic support. But the other one that doesn't get talked about is fostering. Hmm. So yeah, donations. Absolutely. Because there's just so many things like new clothes. I mean, they're just kids show up here with trash bags that's their whole life belongings are in a trash bag, maybe with fleas or lice or uh, things like that. So um, donations are always going to be critical so yeah. that we can treat them with respect and dignity and give them hope, right? And give them the level of care we talked about. But fostering, if I had to pick one thing, uh, it would be, those are the other heroes, by the way. We talk about the heroes that work here in direct care with the kids that live here. The other heroes are foster parents. So I would say, you know, would you ever consider fostering? Yeah. Don't you have to be adoption if you just start with fostering, right? Because right. we need both. We need people who are just going to foster. So for instance, short, which is short term. It could be short term. It's supposed to be short term. That's okay. the design behind it. Adoption would be some of the other situations we talk about where it's not safe or healthy for a child to go home. Yeah. <clears throat> so adoption is the legal, you know, that's the path. Yeah. Right? So foster care could be what? Like the shortest duration, like a number of months. Damn, we have basically? some respite. We have, you know, our foster parents, we require them. You ready for this? We require our foster parents to take time off each month. It's stressful. Yeah. So we offer respite, which means, hey, one weekend a month, we'll take the kids and we will pay another family to care for them that weekend so you can go out of town or, again, self-care. What's that thing about when you, you remember before the pandemic when we all got on airplanes, right? <laughs> What's the first thing they say when they're doing the safety video about putting your mask on first? Yeah. Sounds cliche, right? It's not. Yeah. If you're not in a good place, you're not gonna be able to help others. And so really that self-care dynamic, whether it's the staff here or whether it's our foster parents, we need to give them a break. And so respite care. So we have providers that aren't ready to dip their toe in the, the big pond yet. They just do respite. So just a weekend with kids, right? Just to give the full-time foster parents time off. And I so don't think, so, I, I don't you think need that's so a much service that many people are aware of. No. Respite care. It's something guess I had what, never Dan? heard of. No one pays for that. Yeah. Our donors pay for that. State doesn't pay for that. Yeah. 
So we're going to actually insist that you take that time off. And then we're going to take your kids and not put them in some sketchy place. We're going to take the kids and put them in a licensed, professionally licensed respite home yeah. and pay. And a, and a because raising kids is expensive. Be, that would be a couple, you know, hypothetically, a married couple in Austin Anybody. Who, don't, who don't have children, have children, and would take in a, a child for a weekend a month, something like that. Mm -hmm. Respite. Okay. Doesn't get talked about. I'm so glad you brought that I, up. I, I don't, yeah, I, I had never heard of no that. No funding for it. That's yeah. why yeah. our donors pay for, pay for that. Okay. Um, last question I want to ask you is about, you know, how this has transformed your life, hmm. right? I mean, we talked about your career, your, what happened with your wife, working in business and then switching to this kind of work. I, I guess I'm mostly interested in just psychologically in kind of the story you tell yourself about your life. How has this work and taking this on changed you? TBD. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I've talked about climbing the mountain, which I, I try to do every summer. Uh, I, I just don't know if it's ever going to be enough. I mean, it's that big of a challenge, meaning I, 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 uh, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Can yeah. I do more? Are we doing enough here? Are we offering the right services? Are we keeping up with the needs of the community? So to answer your question, I think there's always that. I'm a big believer in to whom much has been given, much is expected. Yeah. And I feel like I've been provided with this awesome opportunity to help. And what am I doing with it? And so that's, that's not cliche, man. That's kind of what I wake up thinking about every day is I hope TBD someday yeah, is yeah. you did good. And, and maybe, maybe just as a quick follow-up to that. How do you see your role here? I mean, you, you've been lauding praise on the people who work here and work oh, with gosh. you. And, you know, how do you, how do you see your, your responsibility to be a steward for those, those people who work here and volunteer? Yeah. I, I can just tell you it's overwhelming. So if you walk out the door and you see someone cleaning gutters or putting up Christmas lights or washing the fleet, because obviously we have a fleet, vehicle fleet, to move kids around with our vans. Yeah. Those are all volunteers. Bedtime readers. Sounds weird, right? We have volunteers that come in and read bedtime stories to kids. Why? Not staff. Not someone that's in their head. It's somebody new, yeah. Telling them what to do all the time. Nobody likes being told what to do all the time. So just having someone to come in and do homework help or bedtime reading. So our volunteer program is big. You saw today a bunch of people dropping off homemade meals. Today's is uh, chili. They make 10 different kinds. And when we used to be able to gather together, we'd have a contest to see <laughs> which one people like the most, but we're always trying to do little things where they're putting scratch off tickets in employees' mailboxes or just anything we can think of to help and stuff like that. So, I mean, that trying, yeah. I mean, trying to help the best that we possibly can, but it's, it's such a, it's such a demanding job Yeah, that, like I said, it's a demanding job. It's taxing. Right. To be around yelling, screaming kids all day long. And I'll, I'll squeeze in one final question, yeah. which is the work that the volunteers do. I mean, you, you just oh, say man. people who Heroes. bring in clothes, people who bring in food, people who read bedtime stories to the children. Clean you know, the, for, I mean, yeah. Because right? I, I do think there is an, such an appetite for people in, in most communities to give they have a limited amount of time and energy and they, they just need a match for how to connect. We've right. And so what, what are those opportunities that people in Austin have to, to provide help anywhere, any of the nonprofits? I think there's what five but or 6,000 though, but what, 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 what ways the things we, so we have a yeah. full-time air traffic controller. Her name is Jasmine <laughs> and uh, her whole job full-time is to manage the volunteers. So during the pandemic, Dan, it was 
brutally difficult. It came to a grinding halt. We had to close our doors from the risk of transmission. Yeah. Like we knew we brought COVID in, it would be an adult bringing it into the kids. And what was our option going to be? We can't close. This is home, right? Yeah. And they're young. We can't just leave them on their own. So we had to shut campus down for the last year. So it's been very difficult on our volunteers because they had relationships with the kids. So we started using technology and different things like Skype and Zoom and uh, uh, FaceTime and whatever whatever we could do to kind of stay in touch. But it's not the same. Yeah. Campus doesn't feel the same without them here all the time. So thrilled to be vaccinated, uh, thrilled to kind of just start the process up of opening campus. Just our listeners can't see me, but really, really... Uh, intelligent with the mask requirements still in place, et cetera. Yeah. Just starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, and, and, bringing that back. And once that is realized, right, once people are vaccinated, and people busy, can start to come in, right. Happens, there, there's, there's the nighttime reading in person that could be helping. done. There's bringing I mean, in food, homework, help, bedtime reading, homework, help too. There's okay. Play Don't laugh. There's play coordinators, people that just come in and play basketball or soccer or play with the kids or game yeah. with the kids. Like for, there's a robust, when I say village or, or uh, it takes a village, that's what's alive and well here is when this thing's firing on all cylinders, yeah. everybody's here. Volunteers are in and out of the door. And that's why I said it can be overwhelming sometimes to possibly thank everybody enough for what they're doing. Staff and volunteer alike. And to be a volunteer, they contact you. What, what's the best way for the people? Website, if they the HelpingHandHome.org the, okay. is always going to be the place to go because okay. we try our best. And of course, our social media pages, we've got the full array like anyone does. But you can kind of follow along. And then there's a place, like I said, Jasmine, literally full-time, Dan, processes volunteer requests. She's a whole screening process, background check, drug test. You can imagine that anytime you're dealing with minor children sure, or minors. Yeah. Um, we have to just be uber careful about who they're subjected to. So it's pretty, pretty stringent screening process. The orientations, how we talk to the kids, how we interact with the kids. Yeah. Well, Ted, so, let me, let me just say, you know, on behalf of the community, I, I, I'm, I just have a lot of gratitude towards people like you and the organization for existing and providing, you know, just filling a, a, a hole for the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, so I obviously wish you all the best of luck and I, I hope some people who are listening to this consider, you know, giving back in, in some way if they feel motivated to do so. Um, and thank you for the time, man. Like I, I know this was a, a rather, you know, impromptu get together. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for the conversation. And, and I, I know I speak for a lot of people and wishing you all the best with everything. Appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Ted.